From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn about a new study at the Rogers Research Center that aims to explore the genetics behind OCD. Capital Notes unpacks some of Governor Tony Evers' budget priorities ahead of unveiling his two-year spending plan to the legislature. The big one so far has been his call to take 20% of the state's sales tax collections and dedicate that toward shared revenue, which is state aid given to municipalities and counties. We'll hear from a former Bucks general manager, the first black man to hold the position in NBA history. The media asked me what I thought about being the first. I remember saying that I realized that I am the first. They said, well, you see significance in that. So it's only that it's different to others. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here's today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Around 3.5 million Americans are affected by obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD. It can appear at any age, and OCD equally affects men, women, and children of all races, ethnicities, and backgrounds. A new study being conducted at Rogers Research Center in collaboration with the University of California, San Francisco, will be investigating the genetics behind OCD. Through identifying risk genes, the study aims to give insight into developing new treatments for OCD and how to better identify risk factors. To share more about the study, I'm joined by Dr. Kelly Piasek, Vice President of Research for Rogers Behavioral Health and Research Scientist Dr. Sheldon Garrison. Dr. Piasek begins by explaining what people who suffer with OCD can experience. Rogers treats thousands of patients every year across the country who suffer from OCD. Um, As you said, it stands for obsessive compulsive disorder, and that's in fact what it is. Uh, It's a disorder including um, problems with obsessions, which are unwanted thoughts or urges that create a high degree of anxiety. And then compulsions, which are um, repetitive behaviors or thoughts that attempt to lower that anxiety that comes on by the obsessions. And so the combination of those things, you may be more familiar with things like uh, washing hands, compulsive hand washing, um, repeating uh, certain thoughts to yourself, any real thoughts that are intrusive or or potentially limit the person's ability to function in their daily life kind of falls into that category. Um, And we are treating patients at a very high level of symptomology. So we assess that through what would be psychometrically validated assessments. One is uh, the Y-box, uh, Y-B-O-C-S, which is um, widely utilized to kind of measure the degree of symptoms. Um, and we do that um, in addition to medical and clinical evaluation as well. So you touched upon some of the physical and mental health impacts for people with OCD, but Can you touch upon, in general, how OCD is detected or diagnosed, and perhaps what so far is the more traditional standard treatments for OCD? So the diagnosis of OCD is a combination of patient-reported symptoms and experiences, as well as a clinician-assessed level of symptoms. So patients will go through quite a bit of screening and diagnosis to determine how severe the symptoms are, what category the symptoms actually fall into. Um, There's a number of different types of of anxiety that may progress into OCD. And so um, there's a 
a very robust assessment that Rogers clinicians will engage patients in to determine what else is contributing to that OCD. So, um, and not typically is that, you know, just a pure set of obsessions or a pure set of compulsions, but it's it's usually a more complex diagnosis that that we're working through. As and- far as treatments, the more common evidence-based treatments involve uh, what's called CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and then ERP, exposure response prevention. And so there, there's a tremendous amount of evidence supporting those practices. At Rogers, our treatment is very manualized. And so we use evidence-based practices for all of our patients, um, but then we personalize those treatments based on the specific symptoms and the specific challenges that those patients have. And so those exposures are things that patients will work through um, and learn tools and be provided with resources for how to manage the um, elevation in anxiety in response to some of those exposures. With this study, it's a partnership with UC San Francisco, and it's going to be over the course of three years. So can you explain the logistics and what role Rogers is going to play in this collaboration, Uh, Dr. Garrison? Yes, uh, this is a three-year study, and it's in partnership with University of California, San Francisco, Rutgers University, University of Iowa, uh, Miami, Mass General, McLean, Yale, and, and ourselves. And our goal is to collect biospecimens from nearly 13,000 people from across all those uh, institutions. We will be uh, working with Rogers patients who may wish to be a part of that study. Uh, It includes uh, both a collection of a biospecimen and asking patients some questions about themselves so we can really understand how their OCD affects them uh, the degree at which it affects them, and look for potentially related disorders. So we can really piece together the genetics uh, along with the presentation of the OCD symptoms. With patients, you mentioned there's the biosample, there's some surveys. Is this the only patient interaction that's required for this three-year study? Yes. Uh, so each patient is involved for uh, about uh, an hour for a single day. So it's a single time point collection in which we work with them uh, to understand how OCD is affecting them through several different measurements. And then there is a blood draw in which blood is collected and that will be used for the genetic analysis. So single time. You are mentioning genetic analysis. Can you share a little more about what genetics have been discovered that may or may not play a role in OCD and what you're looking to to find out more from this study, you know, from a general understanding to specifying treatments better? Or, you know, what are some of the main goals you're looking to quantify this data with? For this initial study, it's really a foundational study. It's a very important one. What we're doing is we're trying to understand what some of the potential risk factors or the different types of genes that might be involved with OCD or related conditions. And so by looking at these large numbers of people, we're able to really tailor and splice out which genes seem to be important and which ones aren't. Uh, One of the important parts about Rogers is we do have a broad and rich patient base. So we're located throughout the country, which means we get genetic information from a lot of different people, very diverse group of people for our studies which is important in the genetic analysis for for OCD. So it's important to get that diversity. While we understand there might 
be gene risk factors, we also don't know what they mean and where they're implicated in other parts of the cell biology. So is it just that the different cells of the brain called neurons may not be talking to one another very well, or there's an alteration in how they're communicating? Uh, is it the position and the relationship between those cells physically changes? We just don't really understand what that is. And that's why a foundational study like this really opens the doors to answering those questions. And then we can start to look into how the genetics might influence the next wave of medication development, for example. So we have new target, what we call targets for uh, developing drugs. Dr. Piasek, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that Rogers has a long-standing history of research and a lot of data collection. So outside of this particular study for OCD, can this genetic data be used or applied elsewhere? We believe that it can. In addition to some of the collaborations that we have with other academic institutions, we have also developed a biobank at um, Rogers that will store up to 100,000 genetic samples from patients, past patients, and community members who may have some of these unique diagnoses. Um, Something related to what Dr. Garrison said as part of this study uh, may also include taking genetic samples from parents of individuals who have struggled with OCD. And and that's very important because it also helps us understand uh, some of that uh, genetic link between individuals and um, their biological parents, not only to help us understand some of the medication targets or ways that we may enhance treatment, but just even potentially understanding who might be a likely responder to things like CBT um, and ERP. And so um, as we continue with these collaborations, I think one of the things that we we realized as we went down the path of developing a biobank, um, there are there really two pieces to genetic research. There's the the genotype, which is actually in that sample. And then there's the phenotype, which is the the behavior and all the other elements that describe, you know, the symptoms or or things that manifest about that patient that that aren't specified in that genetic code. And because of the amount of data that we collect, the number of patients that Roger sees, the diversity of that patient population that Dr. Garrison mentioned, um, we have a very, very, very broad phenotype of patients. And so that's typically the hard part when you're doing genetics research is getting your arms around the phenotype. And we already have a lot of that. And so adding to that, the genetic information is something that Rogers can uniquely do with a very, very large patient population. Granted, this study is in the very beginning of its stages, but is there a piece of it that either of you are most excited for or something that you're looking forward to learning more about, just personally as researchers? Well, the opportunity to work with just some of the thought leaders around the world in this type of work is a great opportunity for us. As we are experts in clinical care delivery, we also think that we have an opportunity to contribute to the greater science and and knowledge development in this space. And so we're excited about formulating some of these collaborations and then also being able to bring these insights back to how we treat our patients in the future and really developing improved treatment strategies that are evidence-based that can get patients better faster and maintain those improvements longer. So I'm really excited about the long game, although we've got a lot of work to do in the near term. Yeah. And to add to that, I'm really excited to start understanding how the genetics 
are involved with OCD and also the relationship of any genes that might be dysregulated or altered uh, within an OCD patient, how that relates to uh, other conditions or other types of features. Uh, we know with OCD, there is what we call a lot of comorbidity. So there's things like anxiety really commonly affect those patients. Is there a genetic link between the two? And, and right now we don't have an answer to that. And I think that's gonna be really important for the future of clinical care to really understand those links. So I'm excited for it. Well, uh, I hope that we can have you back on once you find out more from this study. But for today, I want to thank you both for joining me to share more. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Kelly Piasek is the Vice President of Research for Rogers Behavioral Health, and Dr. Sheldon Garrison is a research scientist at Rogers. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Ayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. He provides a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Hi, J.R. It's so good to be back with you. I know my colleague Chuck Quirnbach has been doing a great job keeping you on your toes. Huh. But in any case, um, I'm excited to get back with you for Capital Notes. Hey, happy to have you back. Great. So, okay, let's just dive in and talk budgets, specifically one from Democratic Governor Tony Evers. He's set to release his full two-year spending plan to the GOP-controlled legislature on Wednesday. Can you talk about some of the budget nuggets, as you've called them? Well, the big one so far has been his call to take 20% of the state's sales tax collections and dedicate that toward shared revenue, which is state aid given to municipalities and counties. Now, uh, shared revenue has been flat or declining for years uh, while costs have gone up for local governments. So that would be a big boost. Uh, according to the governor's office, it'd be about $576 million more uh, a year than what they're getting right now. There are other components to that proposal though. Uh, one would be to allow Milwaukee County to impose an additional 1% sales tax. It's now a half percent. That money would be split between the city and the county. Then there's a third component, which is to allow all counties to double to 1% the sales tax they can uh, impose and allow the roughly 25 cities in Wisconsin that have populations of 30,000 or more to impose a new sales tax. The argument is this is always to generate new revenue for local governments, which are face caps and how much they can raise from property taxes. So, so what are the chances that Republicans who control the legislature would get on board with these proposals? My impression so far is that Republicans are not enamored with the idea of allowing all counties to increase their sales tax or allowing 30, 25 sorry, cities of 30,000 or more to impose a new one. There is definitely some momentum building for the 1% uh, sales tax for Milwaukee and for doing the expanded share revenue program using sales tax collections. Now, with that expanded share revenue, Republicans have been working that idea for weeks, if not months, with local governments trying to find a way to provide more revenue. They've realized that there is an issue there. What's interesting, though, is the Milwaukee component. Milwaukee probably has the best chance of getting that additional sales tax, but it's because Milwaukee has unique challenges, and it's also probably going to come with strings if they do it. So remember, Milwaukee has a significant pension problem. Everybody else in Wisconsin besides the city and the county 
belong to the state retirement system. Milwaukee County and city have their own. They are facing fiscal cliffs, as some have put it, in the increased payments they have to make to keep afloat. That is a problem. So I get the impression that Republican lawmakers, if they go along with that 1% sales tax, want to have that money dedicated to the pension problem. It won't fix all of it if they approve it. That tax would generate about $160 million a year, according to local officials. So a good chunk of change, but it tells you how significant the problem is. Now, there's also an interesting discussion about Milwaukee when it comes to the additional shared revenue, because there are Republicans legislature who feel like Milwaukee has made bad choices. They want like an agreement, some kind of memorandum of understanding about how Milwaukee is going to spend this additional money to make sure it's spent, quote unquote, smartly. Now, how you define smartly is obviously in the eye of the beholder, right? Uh, local officials would probably defend their decisions. Uh, that said, Republicans want to make sure that this additional shared revenue is going toward things like, you know, law enforcement. Under the governor's proposal, you would take the roughly $1.5 billion pot of money now for shared revenue, that increase of $576 million plus additional, you know, the existing expenses, and that additional money, money it'd go toward law enforcement first. A chunk of that, then it would be divided up other ways. I get the impression Republicans want some kind of agreement, some kind of insurance is how it's going to be spent uh, in Milwaukee because they've, they've got concerns. It's be interesting to watch how that discussion plays out and what Milwaukee has to do to get the okay from Republicans for that additional revenue. You, you've been talking about Milwaukee and how it's facing really draconian cuts to services if something isn't done. It's been relying heavily on federal pandemic aid money. That money is running out. Milwaukee is really the economic engine of the state. Is that really why you're seeing Republicans get on board? What's the political momentum there? Yeah, it's part of it, too. I mean, uh, Republicans also realize that there's been an issue with shared room created by both parties. I mean, uh, Governor Evers has proposed bigger increases than Republicans in the last few budgets, but this this goes back years that, you know, uh, it's been neglected somewhat. And two, part of the problem for Milwaukee is back in 2011, then Governor Scott Walker and Republicans imposed Act 10, which uh, restricted the, or basically eliminated the ability of most public employees to collectively bargain. It exempted police and fire, however. And looking at just the city of Milwaukee, for example, I think uh, police and fire are like less than 43% or something like that of their workforce, but they account for almost 80% of the annual payment to the pension fund because police and fire have been able to continue to bargain for their benefits, their wages, things like that. The, the city and others around the state have not been able to exact the same kind of savings from police and fire they have from other employees. You are not going to see most likely Republican lawmakers propose expanding Act 10 to cover police and fire. And beyond that, Governor Evers doesn't want to do Act 10, period. He wants it to go away. So I'd be hard-pressed to see him signing even that kind of a proposal. So they realize there is an issue there, and that's part of what's driving this is you've got the unique problems with the pension. There's a push. They want to have more public safety resources in Milwaukee because, you know, the city has got some problems, right, with safety. And you're seeing this kind of increasing cost for police and fire for their benefits, and something needs to be done. And the alternatives are not very pleasant for the state or for the city or for the county. On that note, Evers is talking about, as part of the 20% sales tax, state sales tax back to local communities, he wants about $250 million to go to public safety to support what you're talking about, law enforcement, fire, EMS, courts, district attorney's offices. 
Do you think Republicans are will be on board with that? And do you think that'll make a dent in places like Milwaukee with its pension situation? Well, this all is going to help, but Milwaukee still got some painful choices to make about how it's going to address these issues. There were bad decisions, according to critics, made for years that have led to this. Don't forget Milwaukee County, for example, introduced these kind of backdrop payments, these kind of lump sum payments two decades ago that if you worked past your retirement age, you'd get this kind of payout. The They were told how much it would cost. It was well short of what it actually cost. There are just things like that have been going on for a while. And so it's going to help. It's not going to fix everything. It's not going to make life easy, but it makes life easier, especially with that federal um, COVID money going away. There's definitely a very bad cliff awaiting Milwaukee without something being done sometime soon. Okay, moving on to the Wisconsin Supreme Court race. Last week you were talking with Chuck, and you said that the conservative primary race between former Justice Daniel Kelly and Waukesha Judge Jennifer Doro is perhaps the more competitive one. How are you seeing that race shape up, and have you seen things get negative, and what would be the implications of that? More starting to see attack ads fly in that race, though it's liberals attacking Jennifer Doro and conservatives attacking Janet Protosiewicz. Now, what's going to remember, it's a four-way primary with the top two finishers advancing. So it's not like there's a liberal primary and a conservative primary. On the liberal side, though, Janet Protosiewicz, the Milwaukee County Circuit Court judge, she's up with like $1.25 million in terms of media buy. She is getting a lot of the Democratic establishment behind her. There's clear momentum that if you are somebody left of the, left of the middle, uh, you're probably you know more open to her than Everett Mitchell, the Dane County judge. It just the resources thing, the establishing behind her, all, all signs point toward her likely getting through the primary. So if you're a conservative, uh, like the Wisconsin Lines for Reform or Wisconsin Manufacturers of Commerce Issues Mobilization Council, you're going to go ahead and start spending money like they are right now to attack Protestant, which you don't want to let her get a head start burning in a positive um, message with voters that if she makes it the primary in first place, projects an air of strength that she's in a great position for April. So they're going after her now $750,000 plus on TV, Milwaukee and Green Bay, uh, targeting her over a sentence given to a guy who abducted and raped a teenager. On the liberal side, a Better Wisconsin Together political action fund is going after Doro. Now, it's a bit different dynamic there. One, there's a perception among insiders that Doro would be the stronger general election candidate for conservatives than former Justice Daniel Kelly. Now, a lot of calculations going into that, but that's the perception out there. For Better Wisconsin Together, if you're attacking Doro and you have the combination of the positive ads Fair Courts America is doing for Daniel Kelly, roughly $1.8 million, um, Kelly might get through the primary. If that doesn't happen, you're still going after Doro over the basically the, the fundamental foundation of her campaign, which is she is tough on crime. She oversaw the Waukesha Christmas Parade trial. It showed how she can handle a courtroom, um, how she can address these issues. And these ads are about light sentences she gave to people who did bad things and her work as a criminal defense attorney defending some not very nice people. It goes after that foundation of her campaign. So again, it's one, maybe Kelly gets through because you think that person's not as strong a general election candidate. And two, if Doro does emerge, you are taking the general election to her now and not waiting till after February 21st. Now, this is all based on what insiders are telling me. Anything can happen in a primary, right? Things can change. But there's that perception that uh, per se, which is probably going to get through. And it's a real question of whether Doro or Kelly does on the conservative side. Again, knowing that 
it could be possible that two liberals or two conservatives could get through the way the, the primary works. All right. Well, we'll for sure be keeping an eye on that race. Thanks for the insights, JR. Anytime. And thanks for joining me on Capital Notes. Happy to have you back. Thanks, JR. That was J.R. Ross of WISPolitics.com speaking with me, WUWM's Mayan Silver. Listen for our segments every Monday with an extended segment on Lake Effect. And check out the Capital Notes podcast wherever you get your podcasts. That was WUWM's Mayan Silver returning to Capital Notes with J.R. Ross of WISPolitics.org. We're very happy to welcome her back on the air. Mayan was out for a medical leave and has a short post up on WUWM.com about her voice if you'd like to learn more. And we want to extend a big thank you to WUWM's Chuck Kornbach for covering Capital Notes while Mayan was out. Later in the show, we'll speak with a local woman who started a bilingual tax preparation and accounting business to serve the south side of Milwaukee. But first, we'll hear from former Bucks general manager Wayne Embry, the first black man to hold the position in NBA history. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Just over 50 years ago, a Milwaukee man became the first black general manager of a pro sports team. The Milwaukee Bucks chose Wayne Embry for the job, replacing Ray Patterson, who left to join the Houston Rockets. Embry was a distinguished player in college at Miami of Ohio and in the NBA. He went on to be recognized with numerous honors as an NBA executive and is now in the Basketball Hall of Fame. And he's still in the NBA, serving as a senior advisor to the Toronto Raptors. Embry tells WUWM's Chuck Kornbach that a lot of his success is owed to his family and school experience. Well, I grew up on a farm in rural Clark County outside of Springfield, and uh, I went to uh, junior high school. There were very few African Americans in school, and then and then I went to uh, high school, and I was the only African American student in school, and. I uh, was on the brink of quitting. I tried to quit high school, and my grandfather, who was a patriarch of our family, and my parents said, no, you're not, you've gone back to school. And so I uh, continued on, and uh, I was fortunate to have a coach by the name of Frank Shannon, who took an interest in me and gave me protection throughout uh, my high school years and encouraged me to keep up my basketball skills, and the rest is history after that. I read in the book, uh, your biography, The Inside Game, uh, written with Mary Schmidt Boyer, that you wanted to belong. Uh, is that fair to say? Yes. It's kind of a shy kid, kind of estranged from the rest of the uh, students. There were several students who did embrace me, and uh, I didn't want to belong because uh, my parents always told me I always try to be the best and make an impression and there will, there will be resistance, but just continue on and be the best you can be at whatever you attempt to do. And that's what I did. You know, I want to be the best basketball player on the team and I want to be the best student in the classroom. 
So that's kind of how I got through high school. And then, of course, you went on to college uh, with success and certainly in the National Basketball Association after uh, much success with Cincinnati and the Boston Celtics. You came to Milwaukee in what they called the expansion draft as the Bucks selected players from other teams in their, as they were getting going. What were your first impressions of the city and uh, how did those change over time, did they? You had played there in college. And one of those Milwaukee days, uh, being in the low teens and even below zero at night, and I, I could just remember the snow and cold, and I said, I don't want to go to Milwaukee. But, you know, Milwaukee reached out to me and made it welcoming for me to come there. And then I came out to training camp alone and went through training camp. And then after training camp, I went back to get my family. We had rented a place from uh, one of the owners of the Bucks had an apartment complex in Oak Creek. And that evening we drove in, uh, it was close to election time, and we saw these Wallace President signs in the window. My wife says, what are you bringing me? I said, oh my God, I never seen these before. <laughs> and I said, well, we, uh, we bring the place here, we'll see what happens. You were talking about George Wallace, the Alabama governor, and... Uh harsh uh, segregationist who was running for president uh, his first time in 1968. It sounds like you found some folks who were much more interested in multiculturalism. It turned out some of the neighbors in the building embraced us, made us feel comfortable, and so we made our way through that year, and it was a great year. Ownership was terrific, and management was terrific. Of course, Larry Costello, I knew having played against him and so he was terrific and so we were made be welcomed and uh we had a nice run in milwaukee then after your last year as an active player with the bucks you joined uh, the front office uh, why that route as opposed to going into private business or coaching uh, why, why the front office when i got sent to milwaukee in the expansion draft the director of recreation from the city of Boston had resigned and the commissioner and the mayor thought that I'd be a good person to uh, run a recreation department for the city. So uh, they held a job for me. So when I retired, I went back as director of recreation for the city and I did color commentary on the Celtic radio to stay involved in basketball. And so I had no intention of uh, coming back to Milwaukee or anywhere in the NBA because I didn't take it possible at the time. I also, uh, while being director of recreation, got to know the McDonald's people in, in the area, and they uh, suggested that I might be eligible for a franchise. And on a bright Saturday afternoon, I get a call from Wes Pavlon, the owner of the Bucks, and he says, Wayne, I'm in Boston, and I want to come by and visit you. So he came by the house, and we visited for a while, and he says, I want you to come back to Milwaukee in the front office. I said, well, I hadn't thought about that. And so we talked for a little while longer, and my wife was became engaged in the conversation. She looked at me and said, Wayne, why don't we? I said, okay, Wes, we're interested. He said, terrific. And he said, no, by the way, he says, uh, we are negotiating a trade for Oscar Robertson. I said, oh, my God, that's terrific. He said, if you could give us any help there, I give him a call, we'd appreciate it. 
because he knew Oscar and I were roommates when we played for the Cincinnati Royals. And so he thought that I might have some influence. I did call Oscar, but he um, he makes his own mind up. And uh, he was interested in going to Milwaukee. And I said, that's terrific. Uh, and so uh, we both wound up in Milwaukee. And of course, Wes, during that time, he says, what do you think of doing that trade? And I said, I think it would be an instant championship with Ben Lewis-Sender and Bobby Danish and some of the other young players. I said, I think it would be an interesting team and a championship team. And it all worked out. Indeed. And it was carried Milwaukee through a lot of decades after that. You know, about a year after the championship, uh, the Bucks won the 71 championship or won in 71. About a year after that, and 50 years ago, uh, you were named general manager of the Bucks, the first black general manager in North American sports, is generally regarded. What were your thoughts on that day? Well, again, I was kind of shocked because well, I got a call from Wes. He says, I want you in my office at 4 o'clock. I said, what's, what's, what's up? He says, we'll talk when you get there. So I was a little bit nervous. I thought maybe I was going to be fired. So I go over there at his office, and I sit down. A couple of his uh, advisors were in the room. And he says, uh, you're the new general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks. And I just sat there. I didn't respond one way or the other. I just sat there because I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And so finally I said, well, what, what, what happened to Ray Patterson? He said, he's going to Houston. Of course, I knew none of that was happening. So it was a shock to me. Said we'll talk about the details later. Give us some thought. So I went home, told my wife, and she said, "Oh my God, that's terrific." And the media asked me what I thought about being the first, and I downplayed that at the time as well. I remember saying that I realized that I am the first, and they said, "Well, you see any significance in that?" And I said, "It's only that it's significant to others, and I hope I'm not the last." When it came time that Lou Alcindor, who had become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, wanted uh, to leave Milwaukee, you helped engineer the trade of him to the Lakers that really kept the Bucks very competitive for the next decade. Yeah, we, we did negotiate the trade, Bill Alverson and I. And uh, there, of course, was after trying to keep Kareem there. I recall a meeting with the ownership and uh, they asked me, what, what, what do you think? They said, we've tried everything to change his mind. What do you think? And I said, well, I don't think we're going to change his mind. I think what we should do is uh, grant him his wish because he gave us some great years, championship, and out of respect to him, we should grant his wish. He's not going to be content here, and he'll leave as a free agent eventually. So why don't we grant him his wish? You went on to other teams uh, after a while and uh, had success, especially with the Cleveland Cavaliers. There were, of course, some ugly moments then from letters and threats and so on. What kept you going through all that? Given my background, I grew up and I just always remember what my parents and my family would tell me. You had to persevere through a lot to be successful. And so... I, uh, of course, was concerned about some of the threats and that that I got then, and I still get it occasionally. I uh, just 
decided that I had to persevere through it. That's part of the landscape, I guess, and it comes with success. So feel proud. So I have a great deal of pride in what I've been able to do. And as I look back 60 plus years in the NBA, I feel blessed and I hope it's an inspiration for a lot of young people. How would you grade pro sports in recent years on their efforts to add people of color as coaches or front office executives? Things remain uneven, to say the least. Well, we've made a lot of progress, and I think the NBA has been at the forefront. And I can't really speak to other sports. It's only what I read and see. But I've always regarded sports as being an opportunity for people to come together. I think that uh, we come together to, for winning calls and establish that mutual respect in the locker room, on the court, or on the field. Uh, a lot of good things can come out of that. And I look at the fans in the stands. You know, NBA arenas are sold out under normal circumstances. And so sports has been a great bastion for bringing people together. And I wish the greater society would continue that and we all come together with uh, mutual respect for one human to another human and eliminate hatred. And I think uh, that's the way I try to conduct myself in all the areas of sports I've been involved in as a player in the front office. And, you know, we just got to keep working at it. And I'd like to see more, obviously, uh, people succeed. And I wish there were a time, Mike, where you wouldn't be labeled and you just go out and hire the best person available. And I did want to, before we part, I wanted to ask you what, as an elder with a lot of years of experience and distinguished accomplishments, your advice to younger people, or maybe for our audience, the parents of younger people as to how to succeed. Yes, I think it goes beyond sports because, you know, there are only so many jobs in sports and I think uh, look at the other professions, the corporate community, I think that there has to be room for advancement in all. And I say that, of course, academics has been a big part of my life. I, I uh, encourage young people to be the best they can be in the classroom. And if they are engaged in sports on the field or on the court, but I, I think it starts in the classroom. The more knowledge you can gain and advance you to whatever you want to be. Wayne Embry is the former general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks, the first black GM in pro sports history. He spoke to WUWM's Chuck Hornbach last year. WUWM is honoring the lives of black Milwaukeeans and their contributions to the community during Black History Month. You can explore all of our news and lake effect stories at wuwm.com slash blackhistorymonth. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation you'd like to hear on the show, give our community connection line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash Lake Effect. We'll take one more break and then speak with a local entrepreneur whose mission is to help other Latino business owners succeed in Milwaukee and beyond. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
This is Leg Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. It's tax filing season, and this year the IRS is warning taxpayers to brace for smaller refunds. Add high inflation to that, and lower refunds could hit household budgets and businesses even harder. Our next guest is a Milwaukee entrepreneur whose mission is to help and uplift Latino business owners throughout Milwaukee. Christina Villanueva owns Ambas Financial Services, a tax preparation and accounting business that has registered over 100 Latina-owned businesses. She's also the co-founder of Negozi, a social learning platform for Spanish-speaking entrepreneurs. The app offers access to education, resources, networking, and more to help enable entrepreneurs to succeed and grow. Villanueva joins me now to share more about her work, starting with what motivated her to open her first business to serve Milwaukee's Latino community. So in 2017, um, I did a shift and I completely said, you know, there is a need just because I've always done taxes and just helped my family. And then uh, back then as well, I was working with Liberty Tax. And I always noticed that people would come to me to ask me questions about, how do I do this, Chrissy? Or I got this letter from the IRS and I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. So I was like that letter reader that people would come and bring me their letters. And I said, wow, there's like a need for someone just to even assist them or call the IRS with them and translate, you know. I started seeing a boom in a lot of business owners, Latino business owners starting their own whether it was a subcontractor or a complete new business. And that's how we landed Ambus. And uh, I remember just speaking to people, letting them know what we, the services we had available for them. And we spent not much, if any dollars in marketing, it was all word of mouth. And we started with about a hundred, 120 clients to where we're at now of about a thousand clients that we service. And it's definitely evolved, um, especially after COVID. I've noticed that there was a huge demand for Latinos to have access to resources. And that is where now Negozi came about, right? Because we were noticing that there was all these amazing programs available for them, such as like the PPP loan and then grants and you know, assistant for their business, but they weren't getting access to it. So we started doing these Facebook lives and just telling people like, hey, here's a website. This is how you apply. Here are the tools. And we just started getting followers, like people asking us left and right question. And that is how the Negozi community started. Yeah, so Negozi is a social learning platform for Latino entrepreneurs. So can you explain more about it? What resources you have and help connect to others? Yeah, so there's three co-founders, Will and Tony. And Tony started this because he noticed that there was a lack of help for ITIN holders in our community of immigrants and doing their taxes and opening their businesses. And there was this gap of who's helping them, what resources are available. Do they have access to capital? Can you explain what ITIN holders are? Yes, yes, yes. So normally when you file your taxes, you have your social security number, right? You work with the social, you were obtain the social either because you're a US citizen, you're a resident, or you're, uh, you know, some sort of 
DACA recipient or some sort of visa holder. And the IRS came about with this ITIN number, which is called an individual identification number to identify you say, well, in the meantime that you're not eligible for a social, uh, we are going to give you this digit number, which all start with the, with the number nine. And we're going to allow you to file your taxes because they're either you opened up a bank account or you come and work here and you owe taxes, you need a report. And this number is given to them and they have to apply. They have to show that there's a reason why they're getting it. Um, I, I, a lot of them, it's because they own their own businesses or because they can't get a social security, obviously, and they have to file their tax return. So that's how Negozi came about with COVID. Negozi is also 100% in Spanish, serving Spanish-speaking entrepreneurs throughout the country, not just here in Milwaukee. Did it surprise you, the, the lack of Spanish-speaking resources available for people? It did. It was very surprising to see that. and But at the same time, it made me realize that it shouldn't be of a surprise. Here's why. Because what's happening is that they're not, it's not that the resource isn't there. It's that a lot of these Latino business owners do not have a relationship with any bank. So they don't have a personal banker that's able to assist them in their finances. What I'm saying is a lot of the Latinos also run a very cash-based business. That's how they were brought up. That's how you do it, right? Where you come from in your country. And for them to understand the process, imagine in another language and understand the tax law is, is very complicated. And they're really genuinely trying to do the right thing. It's just at times they're not going correctly with the resource. So I don't want to say that we as you know the United States has not done a good job in creating resources, but we haven't done a good job in finding a way to connect that resource with the end user. And that is where in Negozi we come in and say, this is what's out there and we translate it into Spanish or we give a class on it and we set you up with a consultant that could help you. I would love to touch upon that strategy a little more because it is hyper-focused on local grassroots outreach, but with a nationwide scalable network, how do you best foster outreach in individual communities throughout all these states? Correct. So that is where we get these, you know, cafecito with Negozi that we have, um, like, for example, we have them um, virtual and we have them um, in person here in Milwaukee. We're, we're fortunate to have it here but we have little subchapters that are throughout the country. And we get invited to different events where we have our table there and we show people, hey, this is what we're doing. This is the classes that we're, we're having. We also connect with government agencies. So we are a liaison for the IRS. Uh, we have here um, a partnership also with the Mexican consul. So we really focus on being there, I always say that in order for you to obtain a new client, you need to go and meet them where they're at. Don't expect them to have this amazing product and then come to you because they have no idea you exist. So 
we try to meet our users where they're at, meaning if they're getting a passport or they're getting their matricula consular, we have someone there to ex explain to them their resources available to them. So I'm attracted to, with Negozi because I get to now help someone like my mother who's probably starting a business and she doesn't know the language. So it's our own community giving back to each other, your professionals here that have the knowledge or are those experts and then helping the small business owner, bringing them up to where they need to go. With your work, both with your firm and Negozi, what do you think are the key tools you think are needed for a Latina-owned business in the Milwaukee area to not just stay afloat, but succeed and to grow? I definitely think that creating a space for Latino entrepreneurs to share their stories is so important. I feel that they need to belong to a group, right? It's And sometimes being an entrepreneur feels like a lonely road, like you're the only one that's going through this and you're not. So that's one of the things that we've noticed that it's a support system. Secondly, the other big thing that we need is to emphasize financial literacy. And what does that even mean? I mean, let's even bring it down to basics, like understanding the importance to have an emergency fund, the importance it is to have your QuickBooks or your bookkeeping done correctly, because you're going to need it when you ask for a loan. You're going to need it when you need to grow your business, right? So a community and finance, right? Making sure that they understand that. And lastly, I would say is education. And that's where we do some of these classes, education of how do I get to the next level? What are the tools that I need? So here in Milwaukee is that opportunity that if you are, you know, an organization or a nonprofit, know that there's such a big need. Latinos are, are have been crying for, for help. Like, hey, look at me, I'm here. And I think that we're seeing it. And it, it honestly makes me feel very happy when I see all these different now collectives coming together in Milwaukee. And we're going the right direction. Christina Villanueva is the owner of Ambas Financial Services in Milwaukee and the co-founder of Negozi, a social learning platform for Latino entrepreneurs. We spoke in September, and you can find out more information at wuwm.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we're celebrating Valentine's Day. We hear from a local family and marriage therapist about how to build healthy relationships. Plus, we'll hear some love stories from couples who met on the Milwaukee transit system. Tune in tomorrow at noon for Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.